Well, after singing, holy, 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 I'd rather preach from Isaiah what we're doing tonight, but we will stay faithful to our our plan here. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6. While you're doing that, I will give an advertisement for tonight. Um, I know I've said this before, but it's true every time. Uh, We've reached a passage in Isaiah now that is my favorite one so far. It's stunning. And we're going to do 35 verses in one shot tonight because it is a literary unit and you have to do it kind of all together. But for this morning, we will stay in the New Testament. We'll actually go back to uh, Proverbs a couple of times, but Ephesians 6, 1 through 4, and as you heard last week, we've decided to take a break from John's gospel to address a very practical concern that we have living in this world, and that is how do we raise children in a way that's pleasing to the Lord. And so last week, we introduced what we're calling parenting for God's glory. And the reason we're calling that parenting for God's glory is that we parent according to Scripture to be pleasing to the Lord. That's our one reason. It's not to get an expected result. It's not to create a family that we can brag about and boast about. Those things may happen, but that's not the reason. The reason is simply to honor and glorify the Lord. And just as a reminder, I suggested three reasons that all believers need to hear these messages, not just if you're in that stage of life. Here are my reasons. First of all, Very simply, from 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. That goes for everybody. And what's so useful about this is that everything in Scripture changes your mind, changes your heart, because you're now receiving God's view on anything. So that has to have an impact on you. It helps you understand how God thinks, and it sanctifies you. It brings about Christ-likeness. Another reason that all believers need to hear these messages, parenting isn't just about your child. Everyone will interact with your family, and so there is this community interaction. And I mentioned last week that if you've been a classroom teacher or if you volunteer as a Sunday school teacher, you may have come across the ill-behaved child who won't follow instructions and in seeking a parent support. Uh, Maybe you've heard something like, well, we teach little Johnny to speak his mind and to express himself. In other words, we teach him to be selfish and to not obey authority, just like I don't obey authority. And that's really what we're doing. And so parenting is about us as a community. It's not just about you and your child. And then the third reason really is a more vertical reason Understanding how we're to parent benefits all believers because it gives us really tremendous insight into how the Lord parents us, how he treats us as our father, how he disciplines us, how he loves us, how he guides us. And if you learn what scripture says about parenting, you learn what God does in your life. You learn about God's relationship with you, that it's sacrificial, that it's caring, that it's disciplined, that he never wavers from your sanctification. He's devoted to that that it is love mixed with consequences for sin, that he gives total acceptance mixed with family expectation. And so we learn how God parents us. And so as I mentioned, over the next few weeks, we'll be using Ephesians 6, 1 through 4, kind of as our home base to examine some principles that we can extract from this really seminal, important text. And so today we're just doing one principle and we'll do one a week for a few weeks here. The principle today is the principle of heart motivation. The principle of heart motivation. Let's go ahead and read these four verses together. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. 
Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And so we will consider this text phrase by phrase over the coming weeks. Today we will consider, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. There's no such thing as a good passive parent. Right? That it's okay to say amen. I heard John. That's that's beautiful. And I say this as a man, because men we tend to have a, a default as fathers, and that is the, the word, well, whatever. You know, he's fifteen, three more years and he's out of here. And and we give up. There's no such thing as a good passive parent. Faithful parenting means being proactive. It means being influential. Influential. It means being uh, intentional. It means making your family your project, your hobby, your focus, that your family is the most important thing you do on this earth at that moment. As parents, you are the single most profound influence in shaping your children, that what is important to you will become important to them, whether negative or positive. And so there's a sanctifying element to this. Now, you can be passive now, and it feels easy, but it'll cost you later. And yet, even the best plans and the best parenting can still result in total rebellion. Isaiah 1, verse 2, Hear, O heavens, and give earth, O ear, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. And so even God, the perfect Father, has raised rebellious children. But we parent to the glory of God and not to the glory of results. So today, very simply, I want to give you five truths to understand about heart motivation of children. Five truths to understand about heart motivation of children. And then I'm going to give you some examples and some application. I mentioned last week, this is a very very practical, down-to-earth series here. So we need to just give some examples. Five truths. Here's the first one. And they all begin with the phrase heart motivation. Heart motivation is part of the parent's duty to control the home. Heart motivation is part of the parent's duty to control the home. So let's define some terms here, first of all, that we find in Ephesians 6. Paul speaks of the children. Now, this is just a generic Greek word to mean offspring. Now, in this context, it's not just young children, not just little children. It is just offspring that are still under the authority of parents. They're still dependent on parents. A real simple question to ask whether you're a child or not is ask this spiritual diagnostic question. Who pays the bills? That answers who's the child and who's not. Now, if we were going to continue defining children, we would say children are the ones who now have to obey. And that's the word we want to look at for a moment. If we're going to be very wooden in translating this word, it means literally to listen under something. Contextually, in the word's normal usage, it means to listen with attentiveness and to respond accordingly. Did you catch that? To listen with attentiveness and to respond accordingly. Have you ever tried to tell a child something and you knew that neither of those things were happening? because they're doing this and they're somewhere else in a different universe. It means to listen attentively, to respond appropriately. To obey speaks of actions, what children do. It's not words so much, it's what they do. But the implication is that they've listened and they've had a full, attentive heart. They haven't been kind of just halfway there. They haven't had an outward attitude without an inward attitude. And if I can put this kind of in a negative sense here for a moment, 
It is the failure of parents to insist on full, attentive listening by their children that makes it possible for a small child or a moody young teen to completely rule the home. I've seen households where a 40-pound kid is running everything. And you think, man, I weigh like five of you, and I should be able to, to control you, but I can't. They allow complaining and griping and pandering to bad attitudes. It's almost laughable when you see a a, a parent who's big, begging a little child, please don't do this. Please, look, I'll give you candy. I'll do it. You would think that he was about to be shot if he didn't make something happen. And this little kid, no, no, no. For example, this is why with small children in particular, when you're issuing instructions and correction, what do you insist on? You insist on eye contact. You will not look around. You will not do this. And you know you have two tools to help them with eye contact. It's your left hand and your right hand. You stick it on their little head and you go, look at me. And if they're really rebellious, you know what they do with their eyes? They go like that. (laughs) Then you use your fingers and you kind of pull them back down. But it's up to you to say, you will listen for as long as it takes. Sometimes the failure to insist on full attentive listening stems from a fear of man or in this case, fear of a child. If you as a parent, if you're seeking your child's approval or you're fearing his disapproval, then you've let him take the high ground. You, you've already lost. And trying to make your, your child like you, that never yields good results. You're not your child's friend. You're a parent. Go get other friends and then come back and pick a fight with your kid because a good parent initiates conflict for the sake of their sanctification. It is not peace at all costs. It is I'm declaring war on your sin and we're going to deal with this. Good parents initiate conflict. And that goes for two-year-olds all the way up to older teens still in the home. So if you miss the heart attitude, if you miss the heart motivation, eventually you'll just descend into one or two um, extremes. You'll either just become a dictator, obey me or I'm gonna kill you, or you're just totally passive. Well, I'm just waiting to get this over with. Uh, Dr. James Dobson, back in the day, gave what I think is the worst parenting advice I've ever heard in my life. And God bless him for the many, many good things he's done. But he always said with the teenage years, you just get through it because rebellion is normal. No, rebellion is not normal. Rebellion is sinful. It is abnormal. And so we deal with it. If you miss the hard attitude, if you allow whining and and, and non-compliance and attitude to rule the house then you're going to go to one of those two extremes eventually. And I would speak to my fellow men, to you dads, you're the enforcers of this. Now, your children should have a healthy fear of you. That's why you have a low voice. That's why you have uh, big muscles. That's why you can intimidate your children because they need to understand that a bad attitude equals bad day. They need to understand that. You're not there to be their friend. You're there to enforce what you are making your household to be. And of course, with love and with kindness as well. So that's kind of our our background first truth. Here's a second truth, beginning with heart motivation. Heart motivation is the real battleground of behavioral compliance. Heart motivation is the real battleground of behavioral compliance. And we'll come back to Ephesians 6 in a moment, but I want to have you turn with me to Proverbs 23. And we'll kind of ping pong back and forth a couple of times here. Proverbs 23. Now let's review the nature of the book of Proverbs just so we understand the context here. Proverbs was written primarily by King Solomon. 
written from a father to his son or to his sons. And the original purpose of Proverbs was to be a commentary or an application of the law of God. That how does a true worshiper of Yahweh live out this faith with wisdom and faithfulness? How is, he, how is he to do this? So Proverbs fleshes out the law of God, so to speak. And so Proverbs addresses practical areas of life from lust to money to communication to friendships and many, many helps for parents. Now, Proverbs contains truths that are generally true, and this is important to understand. These aren't promises to be claimed as much as they are truths to be understood. They're not a guarantee of the same result every single time. They just give guidance and direction as to the best attitudes, the best course of action as a law keeper. Um, for example, Proverbs 15.1 says, A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. That's generally true. But once in a while, you might give a soft answer that stirs up anger. And so it's generally true. It's a good direction, but it's not a guarantee. So with that context, we have just really this stunning concept here found in Proverbs 23, verse 26. My son, give me your heart and let your eyes observe my ways. Now, in context here, the father is warning the son about the immoral woman, what a trap and what a life destroyer that she could be. But there's a, a tremendous principle found here. The, the father's openly telling the child, he's not just saying, obey me or else. He's not just saying that. He's saying, give me your heart. Give me the inner part of you. And then he says something amazing. Let your eyes observe my ways. We don't really have a good English word that's a, a good equivalent for observe. Observe is a, is a great and I think the best uh, translation of this word, but there's a little more depth to it in Hebrew. It doesn't mean to watch something passively or without emotion. It means to delight in something, to take pleasure in it, to be friends with something, to be well disposed towards something. In other words, when he says, let your eyes observe my ways. It's let your eyes be delighted with what I teach you. Give me your heart. Let me pour into it things that will, that will serve you for a lifetime. And interestingly, this is an imperfect verb, and it means that I'm requesting that you do this over and over and over again. Let your eyes observe my ways over and over. Take delight in them over and over again. Listen, you know that you are being successful with a child when you issue discipline and that child thanks you for helping them become more like Christ. And that does happen. That's happened in our home. It's happened, I'm sure, in many of your homes. Now, the phrase, he says, give me your heart. This is an imperative. This is a command. Now, when, when Hebrew issues a, a directive or an instruction, there's different intensities of this. The imperative, give me your heart, is the strongest intensity. It's command. You will do this. Give me your heart. Now, this is interesting because this is done in love, and yet the Father says, I want your heart, but you don't have a choice here. We are going to deal with heart issues. We are going to have those talks. We are going to deal with internal motivation. We are going to deal with what is inside, not just what is on the outside. But then there's a shift here. When he says, let your eyes observe my ways, that intensity of a Hebrew directive or instruction, it goes down. And now the intensity, there's a name for it, but it's not a command. It's a wish. It's a hope. It's a desire. We will deal with your heart. And my hope and my wish is that you'll delight in that. 
You catch that? It's kind of like you give a child two simple choices. You can obey me out of joy or you can obey me out of fear. Those are your two options. And so the flavor here is, oh, my son, how I hope and how I desire that as we deal with your heart issues, that you'll take it to heart, that you'll make it your own, you'll take hold of the wisdom that I'm giving you. And and now, now you're not just having a battle of the wills. You're not just trying to win battles. Now you're taking ground in the battle for the heart and there's love and there's tenderness there. Because if you win the heart, you win the behavior. You win the heart, you win the day. By the way, there's an implicit assumption here. The father tells the son, observe my ways. The assumption is is that you're living a life worth observing, that you're living a life worth imitating. Therefore, your walk with the Lord, your control of your tongue, your control of your behavior, your sanctification, it matters because your children will become like you. As one pastor said, your values will be as much caught as they are taught. And so your own pursuit of sanctification and holiness, it's a paramount part of that process. I had a professor in school once who said, children are born with one job, to watch you. And that's all they do. They watch you and then they imitate. Now, we don't want to make the mistake of trying to have long, meaningful, logical conversations with children that are too young to reason. I've seen parents say to an 18-month-old, that behavior is inappropriate. Like, what? I mean, this is a boy. He's not even talking yet. I mean, all he can think about is eating and going to the bathroom. That's pretty much it. What's a behavior? What's inappropriate? So how do you motivate their hearts with the little ones? You motivate their hearts with external motivation in discipline because eventually that creates internal motivation. You can't have a long, logical conversation with a two-year-old, but you can give short choices with positive and negative consequences. But even with a little one, you can say this, in the spirit of observe my ways, you can say, daddy wouldn't do what you're doing. Mommy wouldn't do what you're doing. Because a child wants to be like their mom, wants to be like their dad. And so you put that out there for them. In other words, to a little one, give me your heart and observe my ways. But the principle of seeing the heart motivation is the real battleground of behavioral compliance. It does become easier and easier to express as children get older. Now you can have logical conversations with them. Now you can hold them to a standard of using their minds, using their hearts. I I often like to tell parents to get away with their kids, get away from the house. Sometimes the house becomes the battle of the wills and that's the battleground. Go to a park, Go, go to the store, go to Starbucks, have meaningful conversations, let the child be real, open it to a neutral environment where you can talk to her, talk to him about how you want her heart and how you want her to want you to give her your heart. Let's do a third truth. Heart motivation is expected of believing children. Heart motivation is expected of believing children. And now we'll... Find our way back to Ephesians 6. Ephesians 6. We need to define another term here. Children, obey your parents. What's the significance of parents? I read a quote to you last week from one feminist that said that really the best thing you can do for your kids is to hire professionals who can raise their kids for you. Well, the problem is is that those professionals have not been ordained by God. They've not been given that job. Parents have. What's the significance of parents? Parents. 
you as parents are the earthly representation of God to your children. Your children, little ones, they're too young to have a direct, full relationship with the Lord themselves. And so what does he do for these precious ones? He gives them you. And then even for the children who are saved, parents still represent somewhat of a buffer between the Lord and the child. It's much better to have a human parent issue some discipline than to feel the painful hand of the Lord directly. I've given my kids this choice. You ought to give your kids this choice. You can either obey me now or you can wait a few years and you will obey the Lord later. And trust me, I'm way more lenient than God is. Those are the choices. Listen, it's from parents that all other authority is really derived, it's really sourced. The family is the basic unit of society that God has created. But I want you to think about this. Uh, John Frame, uh, a wonderful ethical theologian, he's identified, and I think he nails it, institutions of society which God has created. And here are the institutions that he identifies. The prophetic institution, the priestly institution, and the kingly institution. What is the prophetic institution? That is the giving of God's word to humanity. And you hear the word prophet in there. There's the priestly institution. That is the role of pointing people toward God just as Israel were to be priests in the world to point people toward God, just as we are a kingdom of priests in the world. And then there is the kingly institution, the role of ruling humanity. Where does all of that start? It all starts with the parents. All these functions are to be fulfilled first in the family. You as parents, you're the rulers, you're the educators, you're the providers, you're the evangelists. You are the prophets to your home. You are the priests to your home. You are the king and queen of your home. You represent all of those institutions of society right there in your house. But the instruction here is to children to obey your parents. And there's two key phrases that we have to consider here. Obey your parents in the Lord and for this is right. There's some important implications here with with both of these. And I want to start with the last one. For this is right. Right here is the word that we get righteous or just or correct The implication here, this is our first implication, Paul is speaking to children who are able to discern right from wrong. He's speaking to children who are able to discern right from wrong. Isaiah 7 verse 15 speaks of an age when the child, quote, knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. Deuteronomy 139 speaks of children who today have no knowledge of good or evil. And so the Isaiah 7 example speaks of a child who can understand moral choices and Deuteronomy 1 affirms for us that there's such a thing as a child who is not capable of making moral choices. And so the implication here is Paul is speaking to children who can understand moral choices for this is right, this is righteous, this is just, this is correct. Now, all humanity suffers from inherited, from imputed sin. 1 Corinthians 15, 22 says that in Adam, all die. But in a little child who's emotionally and intellectually and spiritually unable to discern good and evil, God understands this. So which children is Paul more specifically speaking to? He's speaking to children who can discern right from wrong, who can be expected to grasp and adhere to a moral standard. For this is right. 
There's a second implication, though, here. Not only is Paul speaking primarily to children who can grasp and adhere to a moral standard, he's speaking to children who claim to be believers in Christ. Now, why would we say this? Well, Paul says to obey your parents in the Lord. In the Lord. I think we always have to consider the context. The context, the bigger context here is Ephesians 4, 5, and 6. Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 is written to those Ephesians 4, 1, who have been called to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. All the commands in chapters 4, 5, and 6 are given to believers. They're given to Christians. And then we have further evidence as well. The phrase that Paul uses here, in the Lord, it's used all over the New Testament 52 times. Paul uses it 47 of those 52. This is a Pauline phrase. It is very much his idea here. Just a couple of examples. He speaks of beloved in the Lord, those in the Lord, Rufus, chosen in the Lord, Timothy, a faithful child in the Lord, your faith in the Lord. At one time you were darkness, now you were light in the Lord. Every time Paul uses that phrase in the Lord, he's speaking of believers. It speaks of the the sphere in which you exist, that you exist in the realm, in the sphere of being in the Lord. It is a location. That preposition in in, indicates that you used to be here and now you're here. You're in a different place. And never, not one time, does the New Testament tell an unbeliever, an unbeliever, to act as if he's in the Lord. Except for one time, be obedient to the gospel, to be saved. But other than that, never does the New Testament tell unbelievers, act as if you're in the Lord. And so Paul is speaking to believing children, children who have at least claimed to come to faith in Christ. Now, in the early days of the church, it was entirely possible that perhaps some children came to faith before their parents did. And so they might be in in the church meeting down the street and their parents aren't there. And this is read to them, children, obey your parents in the Lord, telling them to obey your unbelieving parents, just like 1 Peter 3 uh, tells wives to submit even to unbelieving husbands. And so this would be useful to a believing child. I believe the gospel. I, I believe that Jesus is my Savior and my Lord, but my, my parents are still worshiping at the, at the goddess temple down the street. What do I do? The Apostle Paul says, as a believer in Christ, obey your parents. And with a witness to them. This also fits the spirit of Colossians 3.20. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. We would never say anywhere in Scripture that doing something as an unbeliever gains the merit and the favor of God. And so this isn't to say to the unbelieving child, if you obey your parents, that makes God really, really happy. That's not the point. The heart motivation of obeying your parents is that it is the duty of children who have claimed to believe. Now, what about children who have not claimed to come to faith in Christ or they're so young that they don't know right from wrong? That's where Ephesians 4, the end of the verse, tells us what to do. Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. If you take Ephesians 6, 1 through 4 as a unit, this is a team effort. Parent and child, team effort. Child, obeying the Lord because of love for Christ. Parent, obeying the Lord because of love for Christ. If the child is not a believer, then everything rests on the parent to discipline them and to instruct them. So what does this mean for children who have claimed to come to faith in Christ and and not just because they happen to be yours? I hate to tell you this, but just because they're born in your home doesn't mean that they're automatically Christians. They're not. 
means you call them to this higher standard. You ready for this? Two questions. Have you claimed to be a Christian? Yes, Dad, I have. Second question. Do you want to obey Christ or not? Those are your options. And I think, and I've seen this so many times, seen it even in our own home, that I think it's more motivating to a child who claims to be a believer to obey the Lord, even more motivating than obeying their parents. Because now you've stepped aside and you're not presenting yourself as the ultimate authority. You're simply presenting yourself as a steward. And the speech goes something like this. Look, you've claimed to be a believer in Christ. I'm telling you to do A, B, and C. You're refusing to do it. So either you're not a believer in Christ or you're acting like you're not one. Which one is it? And maybe you even go as far as to say you can keep rebelling, but ultimately that's going to lead me to believe down the road that you made a false confession of faith. And so now the issue is not please me, your dad. The issue is please your heavenly father if in fact he is your heavenly father. Listen, the idea of a rebellious teen who also claims to be a believer, that's unknown in the New Testament. A a rebellious teen is by definition an unbeliever because he has a mind, he has the capability to understand heart motivation, he has the capability to obey. If he loved the Lord, he would obey his parents or at least sense the conviction of the Holy Spirit when he doesn't obey. So rebellious teen, just normal? No, rebellious teen is just unbelieving teen. So we don't want to mix those up. Heart motivation is expected of believing children. Now, some of you with smaller kids, you're saying, well, that's just great because I have a bunch of little reprobates in my house, and so what am I supposed to do with that? I can't expect them to obey out of love for Christ. What does heart motivation have to do with them? Well, here's our fourth truth then. Heart motivation is a gospel opportunity for unbelieving children. Heart motivation is a gospel opportunity for unbelieving children. I'm not a very good cook, but I like to cook on occasion, and so I brought a recipe. Here's a recipe for making your own little Pharisee, a child who believes the lie of his own self-righteousness. First, in a large bowl, add several years of consistently enforcing rules in your house. Okay, that's a good ingredient. Second, after the child consistently obeys rules, tell them how inherently good they are because they obey the rules. Third, add three pinches of looking down on other families with disobedient children. A little bit of arrogance there. Fourth, add three dashes of religiosity by taking them to a church with an easy believism theology where good kids are always Christians. Fifth, some ingredients to leave out Leave out the true gospel. Leave out the doctrine of depravity. And finally, bake for 18 to 20 years and you will have a self-righteous Pharisee who will raise many more like himself. That's what you do. So what do we do with our unbelieving children? I mean, do we just pound them with the doctrine of human depravity? I had a parent tell me once that Jesus hates his unsaved children. I don't think I would go that far. And it wouldn't make a very good song. Jesus hates me, this I know. That's not very nice. No, our children are made in the image of God. They are beautiful gifts from the Lord regardless of their salvation status. They're to be cherished. They're to be loved. They're to be adored. They're to be sacrificed for. They are to become your everything because they are from the Lord. But if we can go astray, it would be when our entire goal is to maintain good behavior. 
Anybody can do that. It is possible, but we also want to mold your child's heart to desire what's good. You can teach them what is right and what is wrong and what scripture standard is. And now with children, whether they're five or whether they're 15, whether they obey out of a right heart attitude or not, the concept and the topic of heart attitude will always lead to gospel conversations. Listen, the child who has a deceptive heart, who lies, who's sneaky, this betrays the heart motivation of dishonesty. And so you express your love for the child and you're also expressing your concern that the heart motive of selfishness is coming out, of dishonesty is coming out, that the real truth about you is coming out in your behavior, that you don't desire to please the Lord. And, and I, as your parent, I'm concerned about this because your actions are showing your heart. Or you can even, with a child who's obedient, who's compliant, who obeys all your rules, and yet doesn't claim to know the Lord Jesus, now your conversation goes something like this. You do good things at home. You're obedient. You're compliant. You're so helpful. We, we love you for that. We're thankful for you. But do you understand that God's standard for you is infinitely higher than mine is? Do you understand that God has said that all of our righteous deeds, all the good things that you've ever done are like a filthy garment, like a dirty old piece of laundry? Do you understand that the Bible says that no one does good, not even one? Do you understand that even if from this moment on you obey perfectly for the rest of your childhood and even the rest of your life, you've still sinned in deed and in heart and in word and you have fallen short of the glory of God because you weren't perfect from the moment you were born. Do you understand that? And these are conversations that you have in love and in affection, but you're, you're letting the child know that while you appreciate obedience, you appreciate good behavior and that's a blessing to the family and you're thankful and you reward them for that, that behavior has won no points with God. And by the way, that goes for every human being. No good behavior wins points with God because you can't undo your sin. You can't undo it. Now, you're not trying to elicit an emotional profession of faith in small children. You're simply presenting the gospel to them prayerfully, asking the Holy Spirit to regenerate your child. Well, let's do one more truth, a fifth truth. Heart motivation is the essence of true parenting, which leads to fullness of life for the child. I know that's long, but it's important. Heart motivation is the essence of true parenting, which leads to fullness of life for the child. The essence of true parenting, which leads to fullness of life for the child. Let's go back to Proverbs 6, if you would. We'll kind of ping pong back there one more time. In Proverbs 6, we have this spectacular conversation and, and lifestyle that you really have the opportunity to have with your children. I want you to listen to the plea of the parents, the, the pleading and the benefits to the child. This is the essence of true parenting. Proverbs 6, beginning in verse 20. My son, keep your father's commandment and forsake not your mother's teaching. Bind them on your heart always. Tie them around your neck. Bind them on your heart. Tie them around your neck. Make them a part of who you are. Not just for immediate compliance right now at this moment. I mean, a, a control freak can make everybody in the house comply. That, that's not hard to do. Just make everybody afraid all the time and they'll, they'll obey the rules. But they won't have a, a, a heart of obedience. They'll obey out of fear and trepidation. What this is talking about is an investment. 
This is a long-term investment that, that bears fruit down the road. That as you've addressed the heart motivation of the child, this is so important. You've created in them a, a, a storehouse, as it were, of wisdom that will serve them later. You've given them a, a set of criteria by which to make judgments. Does this please the Lord or does it not please the Lord? And you've given them now this, this storehouse of wisdom to just continue to draw from over and over again. And we see this in verse 22. When you walk, they will lead you, meaning my, your father's commandments and your mother's teaching. When you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. When you awake, they will talk with you. And Proverbs now personifies the wisdom that's given by parents as being internalized, as being like a friend that goes with you for the rest of your life, that when your authority as a parent has ended, your influence as a parent has not ended. And you're telling your kids, I'm giving you this gift that will go with you for the rest of your life. Our parents continue to have influence over your heart. And if you'll teach your children to think about their actions in terms of whether or not this is pleasing to the Lord, it will serve them. As Proverbs says here, when you walk, when you lie down, when you awake, that wisdom will be with them. And listen, if your children leave your home still in an unsaved state, They cannot get away from the gospel presentations. They cannot get away from the wisdom. It will haunt them. It will be with them. And you might lead them to Christ, as it were, 10 years after your own death because they can't get away from mama's voice in their ear. It's always there. And look how Proverbs promises children that the wisdom imparted by parents will bear fruit for them in in fullness of life. Go backwards with me to the first chapter. And we'll just rifle through these. Proverbs promises children wisdom imparted by parents who gives fullness of life. Proverbs 1, verse 8. Hear, my son, your father's instruction. Forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. They they adorn your life. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 1. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments for length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Chapter four, verse one. Hear, O sons, a father's instruction to be attentive that you may gain insight, for I give you good precepts. Do not forsake my teaching. When I was a son with my father, tender, the only one in the sight of my mother, he taught me and said to me, let your heart hold fast my words, keep my commandments and live. In other words, the father is saying, I have obeyed my father and look what I have. I have a family. I have a life that's blessed because I did. Now you do the same. Chapter four, verse 10. Hear my son and accept my words that the years of your life may be many I have taught you the way of wisdom. I have led you in the paths of uprightness. Listen, this idea that the years of your life may be many, that is symbolic to a certain degree that you may have a life that's blessed. But statistically speaking, disobedient children live shorter lifespans. They die sooner. They commit suicide more frequently. They die of drug overdoses more frequently. They do dangerous things that kill them more frequently. Rebellious kids don't live long, generally speaking. So heart motivation is the essence of true parenting and it leads to fullness of life for the child. And this is why in Ephesians 6, Paul starts with the heart. Okay, now you have the theory. Now you have the theology. How do we put this into practice? 
Well, in the spirit of the old-time Puritan pastors who used to give sometimes dozens of applications at the end of a sermon, I'm not going to do that to you, but I do want to spend some time on some thoughts and examples concerning heart motivation because I know that some of you parents here are going, that's great, I understand the theory, what do I do with that now? So I just want to give you some, some ideas, six or seven of them here, including some examples. First of all, put this in your mind, a bad attitude equals sinful behavior. A bad attitude equals sinful behavior. A, a child who's outwardly complying but is clearly upset about it, pouting, using the nonverbal communication such as eye rolling. Uh, in our house, you roll your eyes at mom or dad, you're on death row. I mean, that's pretty much where you're going because that's, that is classically the worst sign of rebellion. It's grounds for instant punishment. But when you see the complaining and the griping and the protesting, that's not obedience, and it shouldn't be counted as obedience. What does God think when we obey griping and pouting and moaning? He said, that doesn't count. That doesn't count. The child does not have a humble, submissive heart attitude, and so that's what you address. That's what you punish. And what a great gospel opportunity. Psalm forty-four twenty-one says that God, quote, knows the secrets of the heart. God will not be pleased just with outward compliance. You know, little Johnny, I know you cleaned your room, but I saw your attitude. I saw you stomping around. I saw you slamming your door. I saw you doing this. You know that if I can see it, God saw even more. You need to understand that. If you allow outward compliance accompanied by pouting and complaining, and by the way, I've seen 17-year-old girls stick their little lip out like that and have a mom ask me, what do I do when she does that? I reached over and I pushed it back in. I said, that's what you do. You don't allow it. If you allow outward obedience accompanied by pouting, complaining, what are you sending the message about? You're saying outward obedience is the only standard that matters. And you're actually damaging your child's ability to understand the gospel. If they can't obey out of a heart desire, what will happen when there's no parents around? What happens to young men who have been pouting and complaining their whole childhood and then they're married and they're commanded to love their wives as Christ loves the church and there's no one around to hold them accountable to that? What happens to young women who say on their wedding day that they will love, honor, and obey their husbands but they've never loved, honored, or obeyed their parents and now there's no one to hold them accountable. Really, all they'll get is outward appearance. A bad attitude equals sinful behavior and that goes for all of us, not just children. Here's a second principle or application to think about. Remember that the enforcement of rules with external motivation is God's method for beginning internal motivation. The external motivation is how we begin to internalize values. Your children will take on your values. I'll give you a couple of examples. If you don't punish sin, then sin must be okay. If you don't address a complaining spirit, then selfishness must be okay. If to your three-year-old who's whining and griping and complaining and moaning about everything and you try to reason with her and use logic and try to have a conversation, what are you saying? Oh, complaining, moaning, and groaning gets me mom's attention and we get to have a long conversation every time I complain, moan, and groan. By the way, it is possible to take the idea of speaking to a child's heart, take it to a wrong extreme that you're not providing consequences. Then when a child rebels against you, you don't just sit down and have a talk about their heart motivation. You sit down and have a talk about their heart motivation and what horrible things are now going to happen to them as a result of their rebellion. You must have both. 
We'll talk about that more in a few weeks, but know that talking is not the only way to influence their heart. Discipline and consequences do this as well. I have a friend who told me about his dad and how his dad was not a verbal man. I mean, he said maybe five words every night. You know, hey, good night, see ya. And that was it. But his dad got his values across because whenever something would happen, the, the kid was rebellious and my friend was, he said he was a terror. He said his dad, stay calm, kind of nod his head, go to the closet, get a giant implement of some sort, get the kid under, the, under there and go out in the woods. Come back 15 minutes later, he said, my dad internalized his values because every time I did something he disapproved of, I knew it. And he internalized those values. Motivate them with pain and reward when they're little and you are helping them internalize a right heart attitude. Here's a third application, and this is maybe the opposite of the second one. As children get older, correction and guidance becomes more and more relational. Now, this is just my opinion, but I think that the biggest mistake that parents make is attempting to treat a tiny child as if they have a peer relationship with them. And then when that doesn't work, when they're 14, they try to take over as the authoritarian, when it should have been just the other way around. And you say to your, to your, your 16-year-old, okay, I'm in charge now. Uh, Mom, I'm four inches taller than you and I've got you by 50 pounds, so what are you going to do about it? It's too late. It's too late at that point. The older you get, the older they get, rather, the more you take opportunities to talk through hard attitudes and the more you warn them at some point that, look, there's going to be a day in the, in the near future when I'm not responsible for you anymore and I will simply turn you over to the Lord and what he does with you is his business. I would suggest you get it right with me now because getting it right with God later is going to be hard. It's going to hurt. Here's a fourth principle, and I think this goes without saying, but I think we should say it. If you want to influence their heart attitudes, the heart attitudes of your children, there is no substitute for mass, mass quantities of time together. You cannot influence your child's heart from a distance. You cannot influence your child's heart by being absentee, your family must be a priority and there's no substitute for time. There just isn't. Listen, the Bible nowhere teaches that peer groups are vital to the development of a child. The Bible never teaches that. The whole focus is the parent-child relationship. Now, obviously, kids need to learn to interact, to stand on their own, but you don't have to passively allow negative consequences. I don't know how many times, or negative influences, rather. I don't know how many times I've had parents come to me saying, I'm so concerned. My, my 14-year-old's friends are such a, such a bad influence on her, and I, I don't know what to do about this. The question's simple. Why, are your 14-year-old, why is your 14-year-old picking her own friends? That's really simple. Take them away. Well, but she, oh, are you going to please your 14-year-old or are you going to please the Lord? Well, she's going to get so mad. Great, deal with it. The myth of a desperate need for peer relationships has damaged so many families. It drives a wedge between parents and children. I'm thankful for the peer relationships that our youth enjoy in our church, but you understand the context, that it's in the context of the protection of you as parents and, and the mentors and our youth pastor and so forth. But if your family is structured such that time together is a major priority, now you have a playing field. Now you have a context in which to influence your children. Now you have dinners together. Now you have playtime together. Many parents I've talked to just feel like they get to the point, every interaction with my child is negative. It's always corrective. What is that called? That's called provoking your children to anger. 
yeah, it may be a difficult kid, but you're a difficult parent because every time you open your mouth, it's negative. So do something fun without the correction. So family time is a must. Here's a fifth application, and I want to do this by way of example. I'm trying to be as, as practical as we can here. So I'm going to set up another scenario that all of you as small children need to understand. Here's the scenario. You're teaching your children how to enter another person's home. How to enter another person's home. As a very small child, I entered somebody's home and I had a piece of gum in my mouth and I, I proceeded to walk over to a window and take the gum out of my mouth and stuff it in the frame of the window. I didn't know where the trash can was. It looked as good a place as any to me. Nobody taught me how to enter into somebody else's home. I still remember, though, that my father taught me how to enter in somebody's home because he made me pick that gum out. We went outside and had a very nonverbal discussion about that action. So what's your goal? Your goal is your children are able to walk into another person's home without picking things up as if it's a, as if it's a museum, without kicking walls, without screaming as they sprint through the door. So let's do small children, older children, and then, uh, and then the much older children. Small children who can't reason, who are still too little. What do you do? You tell them expectations. Hold my hand, don't touch, sit still when I tell you. Very simple. What's the heart motivation? You can still tell small children the heart motivation is these people are being nice. You need to be nice too. And it's not nice to kick their walls. It's not nice to scream. It's not nice to take their their crystal vase and play football with it. That's not nice. The heart motivation also is if you disobey, there will be consequences. Now, maybe that talk goes over the head of of a little child. And so what do you do? We saw in Ephesians that you discipline means to train them. It doesn't just mean to, to inflict pain. It means to actually train them. You, you practice having them walk in the door saying hello and standing quietly by your side. Okay, this is the door of our neighbors. We're going to go in. Now you come in, ring the doorbell, and you do this over and over again. You, you practice at home. You train them. Now what you're doing is, is you're placing in their heart what is important to you. You're giving them your values. Well, what about small children who can reason? You tell them your expectations. You give them the heart motivation. It's unkind and rude to to a host to treat their home like a playground and you give them scriptural wisdom. Proverbs 25, 17 says, let your foot be seldom in your neighbor's house lest he have his fill of you and hate you. And if you misbehave, you're gonna make our neighbor hate us. And so there's a heart motivation there. If they disobey, not only do you provide consequences for them, but you continue talking to them about the real issue. And that is that when you enter a home in that inconsiderate way, it shows that you don't care about others and you only care about yourself. What about older children? You tell them the expectations and you tell them you should have been doing this five years ago. Why are we having this talk? Heart motivation, you make it clear. You're making it clear to our hosts that you don't care about them and you only care about yourself. If you continue treating people this way, natural consequences in your life will be that you won't have vital relationships. I have had a family into my home in in years past in which they allowed their teenagers to simply come into the home and be rude and be sullen and kind of sit and face the wall and be completely detached. And I finally called the teens out and I said, you know, your parents are really nice and you're not. You've entered into my house in a rude fashion and I'm only allowing you in here because I like your folks. And those kids doing that kind of a thing, well, their parents should have done that. 
What's the scriptural wisdom you give to the older children? Proverbs 18, 19, a brother offended is more unyielding than a strong city. And listen, kid, you're gonna have a bunch of offended people around you if you keep acting this way. Let me give you another scenario. The classic food battles with small children. Now that I don't have small children, I find great joy in watching these. It's so much fun to watch. The child who whines and gripes about most everything put in front of him. The two strongest muscles on a small child are the upper and lower lip because they go, and they clamp down and they're not eating anything. What's the heart attitude that needs to be addressed? I'm not talking about being unreasonable to a two-year-old. You are going to eat these raw Brussels sprouts. That's unreasonable. The heart attitude is the attitude of thankfulness. 1 Timothy 4, 3 and 4 says that food is to be received with thanksgiving, with gratitude. And if you constantly negotiate and pander to your child in this, it creates an attitude of entitlement and selfishness. Now, you can't force a child to eat. I've been tempted, but you can't do it. But you can simply reserve a plate of food for him until he decides he's hungry enough to eat it with a grateful heart. And listen, when our kids were small, we kept whatever company makes saran wrap, we kept them in business. Because if you didn't want to eat your food, it was simple. We cover it, put it in the fridge. Next time meal comes around, I'm, I'm hungry. Great, here's your meal. But I didn't like that. I'm sorry, but we received food with a grateful heart. Just because you want to be picky and unthankful, that doesn't mean that we're going to pander to you. Maybe be a third scenario. Making your children clean up after themselves. Making your children clean up after themselves. What is the heart attitude? This is rooted in an attitude of honoring your father and mother. It's shameful to treat your father and mother as servants who are there to clean your mess up. It's shameful. And so you insist on self-cleaning children as they're old enough to be able to do that. How do you train them? Well, it's very simple. If they continually forget or won't clean up after themselves, I suggest taking about 50 dirty dishes and having them practice. That's okay. It has to be with a right heart. If you're having your child clean his room and he has a, a pouty attitude, then you practice a good attitude by letting him clean it again. You don't say, well, that was pretty good, but you had a bad attitude. Maybe we'll correct that next time. No, you go to the toy box and dump it out. Go to the drawers, dump it out. Go to the closet, dump it out. Say, let's try this again. Dad says, clean your room. And then they stomp around. What do you do? You get a Coke and you sit there for a while. You wait for them to be done. Then you take the toy box, dump it out. Take the drawer, dump it out. Take the closet, dump it out. Dad says, clean the room. Eventually they will say, yes, my father. And they will go and clean their room. What is it that you are communicating to them? I don't just want your behavior. I want your heart. I want your heart. If you're training the heart, then you can begin to trust your children to do what's right when you're not around, when they're unsupervised. I think it's a shameful thing for parents to not be able to trust a 19-year-old kid in their house. That's shameful. And listen, this applies to all of us. Heart change is a major part of our soteriology, our study of salvation, because heart change is the demand of the new covenant. The heart change which is caused by and affected by the Holy Spirit. Jeremiah 31 verse 33 speaks of the new covenant and the defining factor of this new covenant is the fact that God's people will have the law of God written on their what? Hearts. We also call that the doctrine of regeneration, that you will not enter into the kingdom of God by doing good external things with a rotten heart that does not love the Lord. That does not exist. That will not happen. Now, you can't regenerate your child. 
but your parenting can demonstrate that standard that God requires a clean heart, God requires pure motivation, God requires a desire to love him with obedience. And we can take comfort and we can lift up as an example the humanity of our Lord Jesus Christ who even as a child submitted to his sinful parents though he himself was without sin. And so why do we aim for the heart of our children? One reason and one reason alone because this is to the glory of God. It is his glory, to his glory for us to demonstrate the gospel that we're insisting that we want your heart, not just your obedience. As to whether or not we reach the heart of our children, that is the Lord's business, but he has given us our part to do. And by the way, this benefits you as well. It benefits your heart. Proverbs twenty nine seventeen says, Discipline your son and he will give you rest. He will give you delight to your heart. And so that's our hope and that's our goal. For you right now, if parenting is not a concern for you, the gospel always is, the Lord will not accept your good works. And in a room this size with this many people, there's got to be one or two of you that still think that. He won't accept your good works. He does insist on your heart and you must give it to him. It must be his. Our Father, we think now toward the Lord's table which is an outward expression of the internal reality of our salvation. And Lord, we pray to be able to come faithfully to this table. It is such a simple thing that the Lord Jesus asked us to do to remember him, to remember his body, to remember his blood, which was shed for us, to remember his death, which was accomplished freely without any reservation whatsoever, to remember the the deep, significant cost of our salvation. And so, Lord, now with, with joy, with sobriety, with fear, with humility, we approach the table. And we would ask you, Lord, to bless this time. We would pray for any who are here who do not know Christ. We pray that the observation of our love for the body and the blood of Christ would render them helpless before the cross to obey the call to obey the call to salvation, to obey the, the blowing wind of the Holy Spirit to regenerate their heart and to bring them to faith in Christ that they might humble themselves and repent of their sins and turn to the only one and true living God who alone can save through Christ. And we pray in his name, amen.